five years ago, but let me tell you how clueless I was when this whole thing began. Uh, it's a story I haven't told many people. I probably shouldn't tell you as well, but against better judgment, I'm going to anyway. I told Binu he got a kick out of it, so I'd, I figured I'd let you know. When I was being called to be an elder or a pastor, I had no idea what that meant. Very literally, not like, oh, I didn't know what all was involved. I didn't know I was being called to be a pastor. Um, so I grew up in an Indian church where I didn't learn much about church government. We didn't have pastors in my church. We had priests. Deacon meant just the guy who swung a censer next to the priest. So I didn't have a sense of biblical offices, church government structure. That whole thing was different to me. I, I, the only pastors I knew growing up were Pentecostal, and I, I can't even clap in rhythm, so I knew I'm not Pentecostal. So I didn't think I was even allowed to become a pastor. So it was just outside the realm of possibility for me. So I'm in Boston, and I'm at a church there. I'm studying seminary, and Matt, who is the lead pa planter and pastor there who helped us plant this church, we begin to talk about what an elder is. And so everything he described resonated in my heart, uh, preaching and teaching and helping to lead and shepherding and caring for people's souls. But I, somewhere in there, I just didn't put two and two together that elder meant pastor. It just, the title of it freaked me out. So some of my friends, Joe and Derek, they would say, you're a pastor. And I'd say, no, 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 no I'm an elder. So I thought something like Matt was going to be the pastor <clears throat> and I was going to serve as an elder, whatever that meant. I did not know until literally the service where they were commissioning me. So I'm sitting in church, and they're calling me to be this. And so Matt begins to preach, and somewhere during the service, he says, today we're calling another pastor. And I literally was, I was like, are you, am I? Is he? And I don't know if I, I wanted to tap shine at the moment and say, did he just say that I'm just in total panic? I didn't even know that that's what was happening. Now, as the weeks went on, he began to explain the realities of what that was, and it sunk into my heart. So I, I want you to know you don't need to panic as though the guy who's up here every week is, is up at night going, what did I get myself into? What did I get myself into? I stopped doing that at least three weeks ago. So I am, I'm good with this call. I get the realities of it. I just didn't get the terminology. But, but since I've understood it, I've rejoiced at the thought that God has called me to serve Jesus' church in this way. I say all that to say, if I, who was in the process of doing that, was sort of lost and confused about this whole world, I'd imagine that some of us, many of us, might have questions about this whole thing of church and government and structure and leadership. How does this whole thing work out? How does this whole thing play out? So what we want to do is we're continuing in our series called Be the Church or Being the Church. We've been trying to talk over these weeks about not just what it looks like to go to church, but to actually be the church. What is the church and what's the call of the church and what are the members, that's what we've been talking about all these weeks, what are the members supposed to do? As we finish up these series in these next three weeks, we want to look at today the church's leaders. Next week, how we're to relate to those leaders, the church's followers, and then finish with how do the members and leaders come together to work for accountability. The church is accountable, and we'll talk through church discipline and what that is and why we would practice it. Okay, my hope in these next three weeks is to preach all three of these sermons. We'll see that'll happen unless Shainu decides not to cooperate and go into labor. I've asked her very kindly if she could schedule this for Sunday afternoon after church, 
We'll see if she listens or not. But other than that, my plan is to preach these next three weeks and give us just a high-level view this week of leadership in the church. I want to say this also. When you hit the ground, there are going to be lots of questions on how to apply this stuff, how to live this stuff out. I want to invite you to talk with me. If you want to come after the service and ask some questions, if a bunch of us have questions, we can just form a circle and talk about it. But we're just sort of flying at 10,000 feet today and just getting a general look at leadership in Jesus Church. As we press into the details, if you've got more questions, let's be talking about them. All right, 1 Timothy 3. Let me read for us verses 1 to 7. We read earlier, Jim read for us 1 to 13. Look again at verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Okay, let's pray together, and then we'll consider 1 Timothy 3 together. Our God, we give you thanks for this time and these men and women that you have gathered. We thank you for our posture now, which is to sit under the authority of your word. We pray that even now that you would help us to receive your word humbly. As James tells us that we would receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save our souls. That we would receive this word for what it is, not a word from man, not the opinion of man, but the word from God that we would orient our lives and today our church around your vision. We would submit our thoughts to you and we would be brought together closer to Jesus Christ. Do this and more than we knew to ask in our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, any conversation that we're going to have about leadership in Jesus' church, structure, church government, any of that, it has to begin with Jesus. Maybe that's a given, that's just everyone knows, no duh, but I want it explicitly stated for us that any conversation we're ever going to have about leadership and who gets to serve in Jesus' church begins with Jesus. Jesus is the uncontested head of the church. No one fills his spot, no one takes his role, no one sort of helps him out. Jesus is the head of the church. Any organizational chart that we're ever going to draw about the structure of leadership at Seven Mile Road has to have Jesus at the top and as the very first word. He is the head of the church. That's not a title we just ascribe to him. He is in every way. Colossians 1, Ephesians 4 will tell us he is the head of the church. He's the head of his bride, the head of his body. We said a few weeks ago that the church is a body. We're all members playing different parts, but Jesus is the head. He sits at atop, and he rules over the church in a way that no one else does, right? So in this passage in 1 Timothy 3, if you listened, you heard two different offices, one of overseer or elder, and one of deacon. 
But before we get into those offices, I want you to hear Jesus is the true overseer and elder. And Jesus is the true deacon. Okay? At any church, Jesus is the senior pastor of the church. He is the lead elder of the church. He is the great bishop of all churches and of even every local church. The, the scriptures will tell us this. Matthew 16, it'll say that Jesus is the one who builds the church. Acts 3, Jesus is the one who grows the church. 1 Peter 5, Jesus is the chief shepherd who pastors and shepherds the church. Revelations 2, Jesus is the one who will come and remove the lampstand from faithless churches and close them. So from beginning to end, Jesus is Lord of the church. The one who builds it, who grows it, who pastors it, who shepherds it, who will even close it down. Jesus is Lord of the church. He is the great pastor of every church and of Seven Mile Road Church. Likewise, he is also the great deacon of the church, the true deacon of the church. We'll talk about what the deacon office is in a moment. For now, I want you to hear that deacon literally means servant. It's just the, the word diakonos, which is where we get servant from. And in the scriptures, Jesus is the great deacon. He is the great servant. Isaiah 53, Isaiah would look into history, into the future, and call Jesus the suffering servant, right? Last week, we preached from Philippians 2, and it said that Jesus humbled himself and made himself into the image of man, taking on the form of a servant, right? Just hear this word from Mark 10, 45. It says, for even the Son of Man, that's Jesus, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you were to translate that quite literally, it would be, for the Son of Man did not come to be deaconed, but to deacon, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one who came as the great servant, and in his service gave his life for everyone. Right, as we keep talking through this, you might ask yourself, why would anyone want to be the office of deacon in church? Literally, when we'll call deacons one day, we will commission them as the servants of Seven Mile Road. And a few weeks ago, Dennis preached to us and said, that's a title we would run from and recoil from. And yet Jesus embraces that title. In our worldview, we have to climb the ladder to the top. And in Jesus' worldview, the way to the top is to climb the ladder down to the bottom. Listen to what Jesus said. Some of his disciples were having an argument about who is going to be the greatest. And Jesus said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Listen to what he says. You are not to be that way, but it shall not be so among you. For whoever would be great among you must be your servant or must be your deacon. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Do you get that? In Jesus' world, you don't get to the top by climbing to the top. You get to the top by being willing to go to the bottom. Whoever of you would be great must be deacon, servant, and slave to all. So Jesus is the true elder, and Jesus is the true deacon of any and every church. Hear that. He is the shepherd who gave his life for the sake of the sheep. 
He is the pastor who laid down his life to purchase the church. He is the deacon who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Any conversation we're ever going to have about the church, who serves in the church, who leads in the church, starts with Jesus, our great pastor and our great deacon. That should be a freeing thought, that the highest position of authority at Seven Mile Road belongs to Jesus Christ. This is not a church run by men. This is a church run by Christ, planted by Christ, grown by Christ, shepherded by Christ, and transferred or closed one day by Christ. He is the one from beginning to end. So every conversation we're going to have needs to look up to him and model these offices and these ministries after him. Okay? So today what we want to ask is, well then what are these offices? Who fills these offices? And maybe some practical words for how that will play out here at Seven Mile Road. What are these offices? Who fills them? And some practical words for us. All right, so what are these offices? If you read through 1 Timothy 3 or heard it read, you, you heard two offices, titles, whatever you want to call them, elders and deacons. Okay, that's it as far as the New Testament is concerned when it comes to offices in the church. I know if you've gone to church or been around church, you've heard of others, presidents, secretaries, treasurers, auditors, directors, leaders, and all the rest. Those may be good, those may be necessary, but they're not in the purest sense biblical. They're not, it's not that they're wrong, it's just that they're not biblical offices. They are necessary offices that we've created to help the organism that is the church run, but biblically we've got two offices that the scriptures give to us. The office of elder and the office of deacon. For example, in Philippians 1, you don't have to turn there, Paul is going to write to the church that we looked at last week, and when he greets the church, he says, to all the saints at Philippi and the overseers and deacons. Do you see what he did? He just addressed the entire church because he said to all the saints, that's all the members, and to the overseers or elders and deacons. So that's, that's the world, that's the structure that the scriptures give us for the church. So let's talk about that first one for a second, elders. When you read through the New Testament, what you find is that the biblical pattern is for the apostles to go and plant churches, and wherever they plant churches, to raise up a team of elders, with an S, plural, to lead over that church. Okay, So wherever they go in Acts 14, you'll see that Paul and Barnabas go, and they go from place to place planting churches, raising elders to be the pastors of the church. These elders are plural, a team, and they are always men. And again, here's one of those places where you may have more questions, so come talk with me. Why do we believe that way? Why do we call men to be pastors in the life of a church? So those are the questions I would love for us to talk with more. But, but the biblical pattern you'll see wherever they go is they appoint elders to be the leaders of the church. In Titus 1 verse 5, Paul will say to Titus, I appointed you to stay at Crete so that you might appoint elders from town to town. So as you plant these churches, I want you to put in place a team of elders to serve there. Okay, Elders... In the New Testament, again, this is what I didn't know, but that's just a phrase that's used interchangeably with other titles. So elders, 
pastors, bishops, overseers, shepherds. These are all the same office in the New Testament. Hear that again. Throughout church history, they've taken different forms. So bishop is different than pastor, who's different than elder, who's different than overseer. But in the New Testament, they all point to the same thing. It'd be like a man who is called Papa, Daddy, Father, Dad, Pop, whatever, right? He's the same man, just given different titles. So it is with the office of elder or pastor or overseer or bishop or shepherd. So who are these elders? The elders are the godly men who are called by God and affirmed by the church to lead and feed Jesus' church. They are godly men that God calls and the church affirms to lead and feed Jesus' church. I want you to hear just some of the work or description of what God calls for from elders. Here's some of their job description. 1 Timothy 5 says that they are to rule and lead the church and do so well. 1 Timothy 3 will say that they are to manage Jesus' church and to manage it well. 1 Peter 5 will say that they are to care for people. They are overseers. They're to watch over people while all the while not being domineering over them. Hebrews 13 will say that they are to watch over the souls of the flock as those who will one day give an account for the souls that God had entrusted to their care. Hebrews 13 verse 7 will say that they are to live lives that are exemplary for the church to follow with a faith that can be imitated by all so that everyone should be able to say, like Paul did, imitate me as I imitate Christ. 1 Timothy 3 will say that they are to preach and teach God's word and to do it correctly. They are to handle God's word rightly. James 5 will say they are to pray for the sick. Is any of you sick? He should call the elders to pray for them and anoint them with oil. Acts 20 will say that they are to fight off wolves and false teachers and false gospels and false doctrines. So they have to be ready for conflict and confrontation so that if false teaching should creep into the church, they are the ones who are called to fight off the wolves as they shepherd God's sheep. They are to work Matthew 18 says, with the church in exercising church discipline, that is in dealing with Christians who will not live as Christians and not repent. Ephesians 4 says that they will help equip the saints for the work of ministry. So they're not doing it all. They are equipping the saints to do it and to raise up leaders who can do the ministry as well. There may be more, and that's just some of them. But what I want you to hear is, What is your thought of the office of elder or pastor? Maybe from your past, maybe from what you've seen in the world around you, some of you may have become very jaded to what pastor is. What words come to mind? If the office carries with it descriptions like comfy, cushy, shady, dishonest, double life, an office for nice men who have second careers, whatever it may be, I want you to hear that is not the biblical vision. If anything, that is what sinful men have made of it. Because Paul will say in 1 Timothy 3.1, if anyone aspires to this, this is a noble task. And you know of a thousand examples of why this hasn't been noble. 
But I want you to hear that the scriptures say this call is a noble one. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and every pastor serves as an under-shepherd to him. In fact, I want you to consider some of the, the metaphors that Paul will use to describe the work of pastor. He'll liken the work of pastors to oxen, to athletes, to soldiers, to farmers, right? So when he thinks about what the work of a pastor should be like, in 1 Timothy he'll say it's like a team of oxen, head down, foot after foot, step after step, carrying a load, pushing a burden through, tireless work. When he thinks of pastor, he uses the word athlete, like someone who is disciplining themselves and training themselves and competing and doing so to be excellent and win. He'll think of a soldier, so someone engaged in a battle, in a fight, in a war. He'll say in 2 Timothy 2, not concerned with civilian affairs, but reporting to his commanding officer. He'll think of a farmer, the hardworking man who is up before the sun so that he can produce a harvest and grow a good crop, produce something good for all people. These are the metaphors that Paul uses when he's going to speak of elders and pastors. And again, there's more that can be said, but I hope you begin to at least hear that the scriptures see this as a significant call. Okay, what are deacons? Let's talk through that for a second. If elders are the godly men whom God calls and the church affirms to lead the church, deacons are the godly men and women that God calls and the church affirms to serve the church. Okay? Deacons are, just by their title, servants. They serve Jesus' church. As you read through the New Testament, you don't find nearly the same number of references to or job descriptions of deacons. We've basically got two references to deacons in all the scriptures. One is Philippians 1, the passage I told you about where he greets the whole church. The other is right here in 1 Timothy 3. That's all we're told. And yet, I don't think it's that the scriptures don't give us a clue into what the office of deacon is, because it does. For example, if you go to Acts 6, you can turn there or not, but in Acts 6, what's happened is that the early church has just been born. In Acts 1, you read that Jesus has died and resurrected and gone into heaven. In Acts 2, he sends the Holy Spirit and the church is born. By Acts 3, the church is exploding as thousands of people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. When you get to Acts 6, you've got this baby church with thousands of people and thousands of needs, and you've got 12 leaders, the apostles. That's it. And so the apostles are being pulled in a hundred different directions. And in Acts 6, there's this specific situation that comes up. You've got these widows that are being fed by the church. And there's this complaint amongst the widows about who's getting more bread and who's not. And so they make their appeal to the apostles. And they say, you've got to start managing what happens at the tables because we need to be fed. And so what happens? They have this baby church to lead. They've got the scriptures to to preach and teach. They've got to handle the ministry of prayer. They've got to shepherd this whole thing. And how are they going to at the same time now wait on tables? And so in Acts 6, what they say is the 12 call the people together and says, listen, we cannot give up the ministry of word and prayer to wait on tables. Not because it's beneath them, but because that's not their call. And so they say, raise up seven godly people, qualified people, who will fulfill this task. 
And that's exactly what happens. They raise up seven godly men who then serve the church as the church needs, and this time it happens to be by waiting on tables. And one of those deacons, again, we don't know if that's the birthplace of the office, but it certainly is in the DNA of what the office is. One of those men called becomes the very first martyr of the Christian faith, a man named Stephen. And he got his entrance into Christian ministry by waiting on tables. It's an honorable call, right? It's a call that Jesus patterns after his own heart, the call to serve. And I think one of the reasons we don't get great detail into what the deacons do is because the deacons do whatever needs to be done. So in every local church, they serve as the church needs. They are the servants of the church. And so in one church, if if the need is to distribute food to the widows, that's what they do. If another, it's to handle the finances. If it's another, it's to set up chairs. If it's another, it's to run the nursery. Whatever the church needs, God raises up called, qualified, gifted people to serve the church. Right? So God has called in his church elders and deacons. And these two ministries work together like right hand, left hand. Right? They come together, they complement one another so that the church is served well. Some have described it as the ministry of the word for elders and the ministry of deed for deacons. Right hand, left hand, word and deed so that together we are speaking and doing the work and words of Christ. Okay, that's again a high level look at these two offices. We may have hundreds of questions on how it applies to the ground, but just consider that for a moment. If that's what the offices are, here's what I want us to consider briefly. Who fills these offices? Okay, if a church is to have elders and deacons, who is to fill these roles? Who is to answer this call? And I want to ask you, if you were called to help select a pastor at a church, What would you be looking for? If you had to write out the ad, what would your ad say? I'd imagine we'd list things like education. We'd want to know what school he went to, what grades he got while he was there, what letters are after his name. Does he have an MDiv? Does he have a doctorate in ministry? How has he done in studying? I'd imagine we'd want to know if he can preach well. Right? If you're going to have to sit there week after week and listen, you want to know, how does he do? Is he a good communicator? Can he tell good stories? Is he funny? Is he entertaining? I'd imagine we'd want to know what kind of leader he is. Can he cast vision? Can he inspire people? Can he get things done? Does he have a good personality? Does he draw a crowd? Can he grow the church? I'd imagine we'd want to know about his administrative skills. Can he run a meeting? Can he run this place? Does he get scared at Excel, or can he handle that, right? You want to know, can he lead this thing? And there may be all kinds of others for you. Is he smart? Is he a good thinker? Is he a good leader? Is he a good counselor? Does he work well with kids? Does he work well with youth? I look this week through some of the job openings for pastors, not because I'm tempted to go anywhere, but just in trying to look, and the list is long, long. Here's what Paul's ad for a pastor looked like, and tell me if it sounds the same as what we would have described. If anyone is going to be an overseer or elder, he must be above reproach. 
the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may be cut, puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Tell me how our two ads would have lined up. You see, the overwhelming thing, and we could keep reading in verses 8 through 13, where he begins to talk about the qualifications for deacon, and the overwhelming thing that Paul is looking for is character. Character. The, the thing that is the big E on his eye chart is character. That's what he's looking for. And it's the same emphasis that you'll find in verses 8 and following. The idea is that all who would lead in Jesus' church must have godly character. Paul's eye is not looking for competency. It's looking for character. It's not looking for giftedness. It's looking for godliness. Are the people that you're going to call to lead in Jesus' church godly? Do they look like Christ? Do they look like the great pastor and the true deacon? Not are they perfect for no one but Christ is, but are they getting after this so that they are above reproach, right? Our emphasis is on competency. Paul's is on character. Our emphasis is on giftedness. Paul's is on godliness. In fact, out of the long list, only one competency thing comes up. He's able to teach. Other than that, everything he's going to say has to do with What's going on in the heart of the man? What's going on with his character? Consider for a moment just this list with me. The husband of one wife. That means he's literally, the, the literal translation is one woman man. That's how the Greek works. Is he a one woman man? Self-controlled, not a drunkard. So is he temperate? Is he given to wild emotions and given to every emotion? Or is he self-controlled and not addicted, whether it's to wine or to anything? hospitable. Not just can he have people at his house, but this word is actually can he have strangers and people who don't yet know Jesus into his home? Is he a missionary? Is he opening his home for their sake? Respectable, well thought of by outsiders, the kind of guy that you want your sons to grow up and be like, or the kind of guy that you want your daughters to grow up and marry. Is he the kind of guy when you mention him to outsiders, they would go, him? What? Or would they nod their heads and go, yeah, that makes sense. I don't know much about it, but that would seem to make sense. Does he manage his own household well, keeping his children with submissiveness? For if he doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? A, a man's home is his resume for ministry. So when you want to consider, is he gifted and qualified, you don't, you don't just listen to his sermons or give him a test. You look at his home. How is his wife? How are his kids? Because if he cannot and does not shepherd them to Jesus, how will you trust him to shepherd God's people to Jesus? If he cannot manage the small flock that God has entrusted to his care, how will he manage God's large flock? Not a lover of money. So is he in this 
for glitz and glamour and fame and for all the benefits that may come, or does he do this with no thought towards gain? Not a recent convert, so is he mature? Has he been following Jesus for more than 45 minutes? Has he had a track record of steadiness in following the Lord? And as an overarching theme to it all, it says he must be above reproach. If Paul was writing this letter to another church, maybe it'd be a list of different titles and different attributes. But here he's using this phrase to say above reproach. Overall, is there no serious character blight in this man? Is he the kind of man that is godly and that you would follow? That's what Paul's calling for. And again, if you read down to deacons, you'll find that it's not serious qualifications and lesser, but they look very similar for both offices. Because the idea is, if you're going to lead in Jesus' church, does your character and godliness qualify? Okay, I don't know about you, but when I hear this list, I've got one of two responses. On one side, I feel like I need to resign. And on the other side, I feel like I need to praise the Lord. I remember Matt when he was preaching on elders while I was there. I still remember the things that he had said. You look through this list and there's part of you that goes, if that's what pastor is supposed to be, tell me again, why are there any pastors in any city ever? How could there ever be a pastor? And I can hear the skeptic and the cynic that says, if that's what a pastor is supposed to be, why are you up there? And I need you to hear, I have asked that question of my own soul a hundred times more than you may have ever asked of me. In fact, I couldn't read through this text this week without asking Shainu, Shainu, would you read this passage again and tell me, do I look anything like that? And on one hand, that's what the text is supposed to do. It's supposed to cause you to pause. It's supposed to humble you under the weight of this whole thing and say, this is what Jesus is looking for in leadership in his church. You're supposed to buckle under the gravity of this whole thing. If there's any man that looks at 1 Timothy 3 and goes, check, check, got that, no problem, he hasn't gotten a clue. Because what the text is supposed to do is bring about the weight of this onto your soul. Humble you cause you to despair again freshly of yourself. So we'd have to ask, how is it then that there are any leaders, elders or deacons in Jesus' church? And there's only one answer, but it is a very good one. It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God. How is it that there would be any whose lives would resemble this? It's the grace of God. How is it that God would take any, if what the scriptures say is true about all human beings, that we are born dead in our sins, at enmity with God, our hearts are wired away from him, and that God would change that heart to make it to resemble Christ? It's the grace of God. I want to remind you of the gospel. The gospel says that God loved a sinful, wicked, filthy, unclean, dirty, guilty sinner, even like myself, and that God sent Jesus into the world for those like me. And the good news of the gospel is he dies in my place to forgive my sin and gives me his righteousness, but the gospel doesn't end there. The gospel says, and then he gives the Holy Spirit to me so that he can begin to work on my heart and change it from the inside out. 
See, Christ came not only to die for sinners. He didn't just come to forgive sinners. He came to produce saints. If your gospel ends with just, I'm a horrible sinner and he's forgiven me, but doesn't go to, and now he's conforming me to the image of Christ, you've stopped short of the gospel. The gospel just doesn't end with Jesus' death. It moves on to the resurrection. So we haven't just died with Christ. We have risen with him to new life, to new hearts, to new character, to a new way of living. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So Christ, the the grace of God is that God would get involved with the hearts of sinful men and go to work on it and not just forgive their sins, but make them new with new desires and new heart and new behavior and a new character. The grace of God that there should be any pastors anywhere, any deacons anywhere, because God gets involved in our hearts and offers grace and calls people and gifts people, but even qualifies and sanctifies people so that he might raise up men and women to serve in his church. Right? Jesus loves our churches, and so he will give grace to raise up leaders to serve in these churches. Right? If there is anything in my life that ought to look like this list, it is only and solely and wholly because of the grace of God. I know who I am. I am a weak, wimpy, cowardly mama's boy who was always scared and very lazy and that God should get into my heart and begin to work. That God should get into anyone's heart and begin to give them grace so that he begins to change who they are. And I have great hope so that 1 Timothy 3 doesn't leave me in despair. It gives me hope that Jesus loves Seven Mile Road so much that he's going to do it again. That he's going to get involved in the hearts of men here and raise them up to be godly men and pastors. That he's going to get involved in the hearts of men and women here and raise them up to be godly men and women to serve as deacons. Our great hope is not in turning inward, but looking upward and seeing him there, who has not only died for our sins, but risen to new life and raised us up with him and changed who we are. So my hope for you would be this. Would you pray with me and long with me for the day when God will give to us godly leaders, pastors, so that there would be a plurality of elders to lead humbly like Jesus here. Deacons, so that there would be godly men and women to be the servants here. Our commitment, some practical words, is to do this slowly, right? 1 Timothy 5.22 says, do not be hasty with the laying on of hands. So that says, don't be quick in a rush to call people to these offices. Why? Because this isn't just an application you submit and you get hired or fired. If this is about character, well, then that takes a long time to discern. Right? You've got to watch a man in his life for hours and weeks and months and years to know what's in his heart. When we were in Boston, it wasn't that Shainu and I decided we're going to be a pastor. I went to seminary. That's a good next step in my career. No. The scriptures say the Holy Spirit is what puts a call in your heart. Right? This isn't even something you decide. Acts 20 Paul will say the Holy Spirit has made you overseers of the church. And so we're trusting that one day Jesus will get involved in the hearts 
of people here and call them. And then they began to watch our life. They invited others to watch our life. And so they began to watch our family and we'll do the same thing here. One of our hopes for this year is to launch a pastor track for some of these men whom God is beginning to call and to walk with them through the whole church and invite every eye upon them to say, watch his life, watch his home. Tell me, is he above reproach? We'll have more details again as we go, and we can flesh out how all this works. But as the church, would you pray that God in his love would grace us with godly men and women who would serve as leaders here? All right, let's pray. Our God, we give you thanks that you love the church. Every one of us who have trusted in you are members of the church, and you loved the church. You are the great shepherd who laid down your life for the sheep. You are the great deacon who served, who didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And in your great love for the church, you take hell-bound sinful men and women And you extend grace. Grace to cover their sins, but grace to make them new. Grace to transform them from the inside out. So what they once loved, they no longer loved. And where they once were, they no longer are. But you promise by your Holy Spirit to conform us into the image of Christ. Day by day, though outwardly we are wasting away, the inner man is being renewed. Remind every saint here that 1 Timothy 3, while it is spoken specifically to pastors and deacons, is applicable to us all. We don't read 1 Timothy 3 and say that list applies to someone else, as though these traits would not be what we long for in our own hearts. We pray that you would encourage us all to know that this is the life that you are calling us and leading us and by your grace sanctifying us too, that every man and woman here would look like 1 Timothy 3, and specifically those who would serve the church as elders and deacons. We would ask that in your great love we trust, but we would also ask that you would provide us in the right time with men and women to fill these offices. We know in the New Testament for a season a church planter worked, but in time you raised up godly men and women to come and serve. And we would ask that you would do the same here. We would ask that we would all know this is not a climb to the top, but that in Jesus' world those who would be great must become the servant of all. Do more than I knew to ask. Continue to speak your word to us through the Holy Spirit. Give us today fresh confidence in the gospel. Give to every person here fresh confidence in the gospel that Jesus will not leave us as who we were, but will make us new. In his name we pray. Amen.